Hey, everybody. Welcome to Relish This, the nonprofit marketing podcast. I'm your host, Sue Swineford, and I'm the co-founder of Relish Studio. We're a digital marketing agency geared toward helping Colorado nonprofits thrive. My guest on today's show is Scott Segerstrom. He is the executive director for the Colorado Youth Corps Association. The CYCA really aspires to be the leader in conservation and service and empower cores to change lives statewide. And I think they're doing a fantastic job of that. They really help bridge the gap between people needing service and wanting to serve and bringing all those groups together in order to really make some cool things happen in the state. We talked a lot uh, today about Scott's journey into uh, into the nonprofits and into the nonprofit world, um, how to really scale and be able to bring some additional value to people who, particularly in this time where we can't be in person as much, and uh, and how the CYCA is really doing a great job to uh, keep the youth corps safe and keep everybody out there during this pandemic. So I hope you really enjoy the show. So I'm here today with Scott Segerstrom, Segerstrom uh, from the CYCA. So that's the Colorado Youth Corps Association. And uh, really excited to to chat with you today, Scott. Thanks for being on the show. Oh, thanks for having me. Looking forward to it. My pleasure. So Scott and I have go back a few years. We worked on their website at my company, Relish Studio. And we also built a site for um, kind of one of your sister projects for NR Careers. So those two sites are cyca.org and nrcareers.org. And I'd love to chat with you a little bit about both of those today, Scott, and just see how, how things are going. But first, uh, you know, tell me a little bit about how you, how you landed at CYCA and how you kind of entered into this whole nonprofit world that we love so much. Sure. I have a very winding and nomadic path uh, to the youth core world. Like I think uh, is a similar story with a lot of longtime youth core uh, uh, stakeholders so I got started right out of college. I went to school at Roanoke College in the Blue Ridge Mountains of Virginia, uh, where I got a really great firsthand education in outdoor recreation uh, and kind of the magic of the outdoors. Um, I'm originally from Wilmington, Delaware, which is a very great place, but does not have a lot of public land and does not have a really strong outdoor recreation economy. It's just the nature of, of the mid-Atlantic East Coast. And so when I came down to the Blue Ridge Mountains, that was the first time experiencing the magic of those Appalachian mountains and thick forests and gorgeous understories and whitewater and all of the aspects to that. So when I was leaving college, I knew I wanted to do something service-related. I was a liberal arts major, uh, and so AmeriCorps was a really great option that fell on my radar, and even better, Rocky Mountain Youth Corps, which is based in Steamboat Springs, Colorado, had an opportunity for AmeriCorps members to build trail. And it seemed like uh, a match made in heaven where I could pursue my interest in bettering the world and engaging in service and all the fulfillment that came with that, along with being in the outdoors and increasing my skill set. So 2002, drove cross country right off the graduation stage, never went home. Uh, spent one last night in a totally empty dorm room and woke up early the next morning and drove across the Mississippi for the first time ever uh, and did uh, my first trail season in the youth core world in 2002. I came back east for a couple years when that season was over, but another opportunity opened in 2004 to move to Moab uh, and south of Moab in Monticello, technically, and work for Canyon Country Youth Corps where I led an all-Navajo fire crew that was doing uh, fire fuels mitigation work. So I did a season there, uh, eventually did a couple more seasons in Youth Corps in Colorado, and then went back east again, uh, where I worked in the um, international humanitarian world. Uh, I worked for a nonprofit that removed landmines and unexploded ordnance around the world. Uh, And why that was important was that was the first experience I got in what eventually would become sort of the, you know, for lack of a better term, the white collar nonprofit world. I managed federal grants, wrote grants, and just sort of got a crash course in some of the skills I use now. Uh, at the time, though, working in office as a, you know, in my mid 20s, still wasn't totally ready for that opportunity. So I went back and joined the US Forest Service as a wildland firefighter and a wilderness ranger. And I worked in Bridger Teton National Forest, 
Pinedale District, uh, which is about 90 miles from Jackson Hole in a unbelievable, um, uh, um, amazing place called the Bridger Wilderness. Right. Uh, it is an absolute bucket list, I think, for anyone that likes high alpine lakes, really big epic mountains, and lower 48 glaciers. So had the absolute time of my life spending two years there rangering around um, in this unsurpassed uh, ecosystem. But uh, after two years there, um, I basically knew that my time with the federal government was necessarily going to come to an end. I didn't have all of the qualifications to continue in a career in fire, and I was already 30 years old. And so an entry-level uh, nonprofit management job opened up at Rocky Mountain Youth Corps and Steamboat. So the circle coming, <laughs> you know, totally looping around uh, to where I had started in 2002 I had served in 2005 and 2006 um, building the Continental Divide Trail and then came back in 2010 to help run their chainsaw program. And so I worked there, you know, sort of rising through the ranks. And when a position at Colorado Youth Corps Association opened up here in Denver with a statewide focus and kind of, uh, you know, a, a chance to really stretch myself professionally, I jumped at that. And here we are now, executive director, uh, and you know, still trucking. <laughs> That's awesome. That's a really great story. Just, I love how you bounce back and forth from the East Coast to the to the to the Rocky Mountains and 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 desert of, of Utah. That's that's really cool. Got to oh see yeah, some and neat a, stuff. And a lot left out of there. I mean, there was grad school in Idaho. Um, there was it was basically um, a different state every year for my twenties into into my early thirties, um, on the road, um, really, you know, didn't even sign a lease anywhere until I was 30 years old for the most part. Um, you know, in in terms of settling down and, um, and that sort of experience I wouldn't trade, you know, for anything. It gives me really important context to what I do. Yeah, for sure. How do you, how, how does that sit to be in an office situation now? Um, you know, when you were so on the go and I'm, I'm assuming, you know, sleeping rough a lot of it, a lot of the time. And I have a few friends who are firefighters. I know that that, that can be pretty, pretty adventurous. Yeah. I mean, there was a time where, where more years than not in my twenties, I was 200 nights under the stars, um, both for work and play. It was, it was more common for me to be sleeping outside than it was inside back then. Right. Um, you know, uh, there are people that have a very different story than mine, I'm sure. But for most of us, you really do eventually come to this hard truth that in terms of career advancement, in terms of broadening the impact you're making, um, that you sort of have to wrap your arms around the transition out of the field is coming for you. Right. I think we would all love to transition to work for National Geographic or we would love to have the right circumstances in life to stay in the field at that salary, at that area. But for the most part, yeah, Stu, for sure, that's something that takes a while to to finally accept as reality. Right. And so the best advice I would give to anyone facing that and a lot of youth corps members ultimately do face that is you need to find ways to make the best of that, right? So the, the way that I see it is I have irreplaceable field experience that helps me both still connect with youth and young adults that are back where I was, gosh dang, almost 20 years ago now, right. um, and also is a really irreplaceable lens when you're doing project development, um, when you're speaking to land managers, uh, you know, you're, you're bringing a real-world firsthand um, ground, you know, sort of ground truth knowledge that lets you earn trust more quickly, earn mm-hmm. credibility more quickly. Uh, you can be more efficient. Um, you can find sort of a common vision more quickly. So there are definitely advantages to it. Um, you know, my wife still gives me grief because I I still long for the days of mattress on the floor of a random bedroom. <laughs> you know, like it. The, one of the you know. Like what made it personal to me, it was weird buying a bed, right? Right. So even when I made the transition out of the field, to me, like literally spending that money uh, and, you know, was not rational or a high priority. And it took 
I mean, it took to my mid thirties to be like, no, okay. I actually need to go buy a box spring. I need to go buy a physical bed. Like there are advantages to progressing as an adult. Um, so I, there are moments where I still sort of long for those days of living in the hippie house with eight other friends that are coming and going and you're all on totally different life stories. But for the most part, you can leverage that experience in a really meaningful way and you yeah. can use it to really benefit the world. Yeah, for sure. I think we, we talk about scalability a lot and particularly with solopreneurs. One of the challenges is that if you're the only person doing all the work, there's a finite amount of, of positive effect that you can actually make when, when doing that. And it doesn't diminish that, that positive effect. Yeah. However, you know, as one transitions into, you know, from that kind of field work to what you're doing now, you know, you, you're, you're multiple Xing your, your effect there in terms of, of the impact that you're making and the positive, that positive impact that you're making in terms, you know, in terms of, of, of really creating opportunities for groups as opposed to just doing it on your own um, yeah, as part a, of a group. So that's a really good thought. I mean, there's tension there for sure between, um, you know, there is great value in going a mile deep in one place with a micro focus. I mean, that is necessary. My macro level work doesn't exist without micro level work as sort of the balance in the, in the, in the ecosystem of, of nonprofits and in the conservation sector. Um, One, one isn't more valuable than the other. I think a lot of it is self inventory. It is, you know, how do you, what fulfills you the most and how, what is the impact you are seeking? Um, it's, it's a really good point. I mean, there are definitely folks that know that dropping anchor and going a mile deep and making comprehensive change in that one stripe of the color spectrum is right for them. And that is really important Sure. Uh, for me. Um, my background that was, was very different. It, for my 20s, it was being on the move. And then when that fork in the road comes where I think some people do decide, okay, I, this is where I want to stay and go a mile deep and make a lasting change in this thing. For me, it was very different. It was, right. um, I am more driven by um, not as deep, but broader and more systemic. Right. It's so fun, though. You know, I'm sure that if you go back to the Colorado Trails, it's in those sections that you worked on and be able to, like, see that thing that you built. And, and you know, because I, I do quite a bit of trail work as well. Um, I know that we met through the Volunteers for Outdoor Colorado um, crew. Um, they made the introduction to, to you, um, to me, I think. And, um, yep. and so I've done, you know, some work with them. And it's really so satisfying to be able to go back to those places that you've, that you've touched. And, and so it's cool that you have kind of both, both ends of that spectrum in terms of, of that impact. Yeah. And they tell you that will happen and you don't totally believe it uh, as a young person. You know, when I joined youth Corps, Rocky Mountain youth Corps had already been around for 10 years. The core world in Colorado had been around for 15 years. So there was a good, good base of experience and knowledge. And one of the things my mentors, you know, you told you, and one of the things to look forward to is, you know, you're going to leave pieces of yourself all over the state doing this work. And when you get older, it's going to be really special. Yeah. And I didn't fully appreciate it sort of went in one ear and out the other. And to your point, Stu, when I'm going up forward road off I-70 and, you know, hiking above empire, I spent four weeks there doing really intensive work and you remember the the rocks in the rock wall and then it's a short leap to the human memories of man i remember what happened this day i remember this memory and you know then it's not you know it's a short leap to then remembering that entire crew culture and where your base camp was and it really is true when you when you work with your hands and when you work outside and when you work on you know on on trail um, you sort of leave these little memory drops all around the state that that will that both will come back to you and you'll find yourself seeking out right yeah. that you'll go back to those trails. It it is actually one of the more special parts I think of my core experience is I have these very positive triggers all around, particularly Northwest Colorado, mm-hmm. that um, are sort of these 
mileposts in my story. And, right. and either when I read about the trail or even better when I'm on them, man, yeah, the, these forgotten memories of being 22 years old on a random day in July come uh-huh. flooding back crystal clear and you relive sort of this other part of your life. Yeah, that's super cool. So tell us a little bit more about the CYCA and, and what your, your guys' mission is and how, how you're creating these opportunities for, for young people across the state here, here in Colorado. Absolutely. I will boldly say uh, that Colorado has the most vibrant youth corps and conservation service corps culture in the country. We really thrive um, and stand out in a sector that is doing really well. Um, So here in Colorado, we have eight conservation corps that engage over 1,800 youth and young adults and veterans uh, in a year. And so one of the really inspirational and fulfilling parts of our sector is each of those eight conservation corps all collaborate and rely on each other and support each other and have created what is a, a... impactful partnership model. And so at the state association, our job is how do we foster that? How do we keep these happily collegial, transparent, um, um, cross-pollination relationships going? So there's a lot that we do. Um, We do everything from um, legislative affairs at the state level. So we try and educate and advocate with legislators about what cores are doing and how do we do our work even better. And the nice part about that work is no one is against putting young people to work. No one is against creating communities more safer from fire. Um, That's actually enjoyable work for me because it's nothing like dramatized TV shows, right? Uh, There's, it is um, joyful to go to folks that are in a position to make a difference and say, hey, here's how you can make lives in Colorado even better. Um, and it's non-controversial, and it's actually kind of a straight line to positive impact. We do fundraising. So we'll go to um, land management agencies um, and other, you know, um, other stakeholders and provide um, economies of scale and efficiency where they can work through the association and reach all eight cores in Colorado um, at once. And so when You think of the bureaucracy, the necessary bureaucracy, and the process for accessing government funds, um, using government funds, reporting back on government funds, all of the behind the scenes human power that goes over, that goes into following the law and, and going through these long processes. Instead of having to do that eight different times for eight different cores, they can just work through the association and use taxpayer dollars. Uh, just much more efficiently. And we can get those dollars out on the ground much more quickly. So uh, the Bureau of Land Management, Colorado Parks and Wildlife, Great Outdoors Colorado, commonly known as GOCO. These are just a few of the entities that work through the association so that we can really spare their resources um, and allow them to have um, an amplified effect of their investment. And then probably the third core mission that we have at the association is fostering that communication among cores. So we serve as the grand central station for cores to get in contact to each other, to learn from each other, to look down the road and identify what are the next conversations that we want to have. And, you know, there's really no better example of that both at the state level and the national level is around the coronavirus. Mm-hmm. Right? Cores had a recognizable season this year. We deployed young people. We did work. It was scaled down and it looked very different, but it did happen. And the primary reason for that is because our sector doesn't compete internally with each other. And so when the virus started to hit, it wasn't looked at as an opportunity to develop new business or elbow out others for, 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 for partnerships or to try and outcompete and outperform. It was exactly the opposite. Suddenly, these town halls sprung up um, in which cores across the country that we then replicated in Colorado, where they were able to share best practices. What are their new safety protocols? 
Um, what is the infection rate, which was incredibly low? And you'd think that's surprising. Like, you know, we're, we're so, um, we're everywhere in Colorado. We engage so many youth and young adults. And we have, you know, over, you know, 1,500 people in our sector. But one of the important things that led to our success, not just partnership, was being in the outdoors turned out to be the safest place you could be. For sure. So when we would self-quarantine and we would essentially get the crew uh, consistently negative, then they became a self-sustaining pod. So base camp actually became a really safe place. We still observe social distancing. Um, we still, uh, on the work site, we still went through extraordinary risk management measures, mm-hmm. but we were also assisted by the fact that being above tree line turned out to be a pretty darn secure place to do work and live and eat and be around other folks. Mm-hmm. Um, so this spirit of partnership, this spirit of collaboration um, allowed cores to develop an entirely new model for the season. So some of the things that we did that were different from any other year, and gosh dang, we hope will be different from any future year, sure. is social distancing in vehicles. Right. We had to go out and secure a number of additional vans and passenger vehicles so that we could minimize the amount of people who were riding together with mm-hmm. the windows down. Mm-hmm. Um, we had to quarantine our tools. So there mm-hmm. was no cross-pollination of tools and equipment from crew to crew like there would have been in the past. Mm-hmm. Not to get too technical, but there is a common way of building trail in which you are spread out with each person doing a little bit different part of the trail, right? Mm-hmm. So someone's cutting top line and then someone's taking a little bit of the vegetation and that happens through three or four members and then there's a couple people finishing so it was easy to social distance because you have to socially distance anyway out of risk management. People right. are swinging tools. Um, you don't want to be within 10 to 15 feet of people when you're building trail anyway. So we just try to do it in masks. Uh, right. So through sort of all of this innovative design um, and really admirable transparency and sharing of best practices, uh, cores were able to... to have a really impactful season. That's great. I know that, uh, or I believe that they're that the Boulder Youth Corps, which originally I think was going to cancel their season, you would know more about this. They did. Did they? Okay. They did. Yeah. They, um, and it was basically a matter of um, the nature of that program. They uh-huh. could not find a, an acceptable risk management threshold to have the season. Okay. Um, and a lot of that wasn't related to working in the field. It was related to protocols around vehicle travel. Yeah. Right. Boulder County made yeah. Boulder County made the totally understandable decision that they only wanted one person in a vehicle at any time. Mm-hmm. I I get that. Um, the problem is Boulder County is high school students, not all of whom are going to have their driver's license. Right. And but that's bearing the lead. On top of that, you literally can't secure three hundred vehicles. Um, for the 300 members of Boulder County Youth Corps. And so um, that was an example of where I think the county and the Corps made a heartbreaking decision rooted in science um, that they just were not able to execute the season. Um, So they were the one Corps um, uh, that uh, faced that reality um, and the other seven Corps um, uh, executed just a very different looking season. Yeah, I think the transportation piece becomes the you know a real challenge, um, and I really like the idea of of potting, in that if if you can get everyone negative and keep everybody, you know, a lot of these places, like you said, you'll go out and you'll be at base camp for for a month or you know longer maybe, and so it becomes pretty easy to just pod that out where you know, it's like okay, well. We're isolated, so it's, it's and, pretty, pretty safe. And only a couple cores um, do the twenty-four-seven model, but even among the day, the day model cores, being out on public land is one of the safest environments to be at. You know, when right. you're at at Bar Lake State Park, um, or you're out on BLM land, or you know, Rappahoe Roosevelt National Forest, um, when you have the right protocols in place, when you're socially distanced, when you're wearing a mask. Um, being out in that open air environment with essentially perpetual circulation 
amongst your crew members that are testing negative. Um, it is a, a risk management threshold that you can and, can and we're able to reach. That's awesome. So, so tell me about a little bit more. I mean, it sounds like you guys are doing three kind of main, main areas of influence. What, what are the biggest challenges that, that you experience on a, you know, on a either daily or quarterly or yearly basis in, in reaching the goals that you're, that you're trying to reach. And obviously this year has been different, but what, what are some of the challenges even, even this year? Yeah, this year definitely presented a unique set of circumstances. Uh, the first of which is financial shortfalls, right? We had your know, longtime partners that faced monumental financial challenges and pressures on them where um, they didn't have all of the financial resources that, that they had in other years to hire and deploy a crew. Uh, the youth core model is fee for service. So that, that's our business model is we go and, um, and uh, have land management agencies and, and other stakeholders contract us to then do conservation missions like trail, remove invasive species, uh, fire fuels mitigation, you name it. So uh, that was a huge challenge is the state, uh, state of Colorado out on down are going to face incredible budget shortfalls because of the emergency measures they had to take. Mm-hmm. So it's working with those partners to determine what's still possible and what are additional funding sources that maybe we can bring to the table to supplement those dollars. Um, and you know, how do we, how do we manage to, to, find a way to, to execute these projects. Because the flip side is due to the safer at home orders and due to the science emerging, that being in the outdoors is, is one of the, the safer elements, um, along with the mental wellness that was really critical as we sort of worked through what it was like to be in isolation or what was it like to, to have to self-quarantine. We're seeing our public land get a, a level of use that it's never seen before. So mm-hmm. we sort of had this um, this twofold circumstance where natural resources are facing uh, unparalleled impact to other years, mm-hmm. while there's dramatically less resources to keep them in workable, healthy condition. Right. So cores occupied a really critical critical nexus of of keeping these local resources open, keeping trails open and safe, uh, continuing fire mitigation plans so that future years uh, don't suffer more as a result of COVID while trying to develop and find the dollars to be able to do that. So that was a really uh, big challenge was going to partners and trying to find um, where were the sources of funding um, to make that happen. When it came to legislative affairs, it was an oddball session, you know, general assembly session to say the least. Yeah. Uh, the, the, it was, um, you know, remote, uh, remote sessions and only being gaveled in one or two days a week. Um, and quite candidly, um, and all of the legislative priorities being subsumed by COVID. So right. even anything that would have been on the docket, that would have directly concerned cores, you know, fell off the radar because it was, it was literally, okay, how do we secure PPE and what money goes to that? How do we elevate um, hospital services? How do we support first responders? And, and, you know, it it was, it was for good reason, uh, an exclusive conversation around COVID for the most part. And so um, our legislative affairs and, 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 Legislator education um, needed to take a back seat to, 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 to you know what was a global pandemic that was taking lives. Sure. So we we completely understood, but you know that was an example of where you know one of your fundamental missions really needs to be put on hold. Um, and even though it's it's a way that you really self-identify, and it is one way that you evaluate your success, and and it has a really big piece of the pie in what you do. Uh, we had to we had to furlough it um, and and focus on other areas. Gotcha. Well, and then it sounds like you had an additional. I mean, at least you had the what sounds to me like the infrastructure for the communications piece between cores. Um, you know that was in place. So 
so leading, you know, leaning back onto, onto those processes. Um, it's really cool that, 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 that collaborative effort. Yeah. It was a matter of basically from, from a strategic organizational standpoint, it was a matter of amplifying what you can do and leaving behind what you can't, right. right? It wasn't going to do us any good to just spin our wheels and, and, um, hope that the legislative session, you know, eventually, uh, had the bandwidth to shift focus. You knew that wasn't going to happen. And Mm -hmm. so you had to really move quickly beyond that capacity. Um, whereas our role as a facilitator of conversations became more important than it ever had, because it was literally about saving lives. It was, how do we bring these youth and young adults that really need our service? How do we bring them to communities that really need our service? And how do we do that in a way that doesn't endanger them? And so, uh, that, you know, those, the, the missions that were in front of our nose that were really important, uh, suddenly now took all of our resources. Um, and it was, it was a matter of, of understanding, you know, what did you need to leave behind you and what do you need to focus on moving forward? (laughs) Right. Right. Have you guys changed your, you know, it's a, Sounded to me when you were describing how where the CYCA sits that that you guys sit kind of in the middle and and disseminate distribute information um, both kind of taking multiple one one opportunity and distributing that out to the cores. So coming from a you know I need help with this, but I don't want to talk to all eight cores. Talk to you. You guys get that message out. And then similarly, a, a single core might come to you and say, I need to get in touch with all of these legislators or all of these um, agencies. And so they come to you and then you do it that way, you know, kind of kind of this way as well. So it's, it's kind of this two way um, street here that, that you that you walk on. Have you changed your your tactics much in terms of how that communication works? Um, yeah, what, what, how did that shift in, in this year? Yeah, that's a good question. In, uh, the, the primary tactic that changed like the, like the rest of the world and, and has now become kind of a pop culture icon is, is video conferencing, right? That was, um, we were sort of shoved into the 21st century, uh, in terms of, of escalating our abilities to have cores to talk to each other. In the past, um, we had just very traditional means of communication. Um, I was on the road a lot traveling for work. It was a lot of in-person communication uh, because a lot of what we work on is complex and delicate. And that, uh, and so that in-person communication was really critical. Um, now we've had to supplement that with uh, video conferencing like the rest of the entire world. Beyond that, Stu, I would say we actually haven't had any revolutionary changes. It's a matter of that those, it's a matter of frequency, not delivery. So in the past, where, you know, it may have just been several times out of the year when a core would call up and say, hey, I have a specific question I think the other eight cores can help me with. Can you facilitate a call? Um, Or we'd have two cores independently coming to each other and we're seeing, oh, there's overlap in need. We, we need to get you two together. We started seeing that happening on a weekly and monthly basis because their needs had grown at the same time their available capacity declined because everyone was basically in the middle of a hurricane, right? Trying to build a model ship. And so uh, as, as this sort of situation unfolded, we saw our role as a convener and a facilitator really become prominent and become frequently used. Um, So in some ways, we are fortunate that we had to only make some modest shifts in technology uh, in order to to make this happen because we were already in the business of convening and facilitating. Right. But it was a matter of seeing that need, that part of our mission delivery grow exponentially overnight where um, it was, hey, uh, a quarterly situation report by email was no longer going to cut it. We actually need bi-monthly, in-person, virtually, town halls where we dedicate all core staff in the state every two weeks to a 90-minute block that, you know, we move through at the speed of light. Um, things th- These are synergies that were unthinkable a year ago, uh, but became commonplace for us. Do you feel like that is the the new normal for for you, or will you go back to 
because one of the things that we've seen and, and full transparency that, you know, the story that one tells is dependent upon the situation that one's in. Right. And so if you have a facility with, uh, you know, conference rooms and coffee tables and or coffee machines and all that stuff, that's the story that you tell is that we're this great big agency that does this stuff and, and has all these things. And then, and, and then in the absence of that, I think there is the, the chance that you, you think that through all the time and, and are very concerned about, well, I don't have that. So does that mean that people will look at me a certain way? And in this pandemic, so in, in, the, in the advertising and marketing space, that's always been this you know, back and forth that we've, we've struggled with where it's like, oh, we need to be, you know, we need to have an office space to be validated. And now you know, now that people for the last six plus months have gotten used to the fact that no one has that stuff anymore. And, and it's like, well, maybe we don't need that anymore. And so the conversation just really, really shifts. And so coming back to what, what you guys are doing, do you, do you feel like that, that now b- becomes how you do things? Yeah, that is, you're outlining one of the really important intersections that CYCA is going to face this fall and winter, which is, uh, I mean, to your, as you mentioned, Stu, simply put, what is the future of the brick and mortar CYCA, right. um, and and how does that relate to the to the human dimension? Um, what what is going to challenge me as a manager is. Um, what is that? What is that human dimension part to this decision? How much do we feed off each other? How much do, do does the what type of culture of our organization can we facilitate uh, in a if we were to do a totally remote work environment? Right. Right. Um, and and it and to me, where where you know, I'm going to really grow and be stretched professionally is analyzing this more than an inch deep because an inch deep analysis is proving right now that like we don't need brick and mortar, right? That that through Slack and through Zoom and, and through a bunch of our modest technological improvements, um, we do have workflow, right? We have document flow. Um, we don't have duplication of effort. And so it's it's going well. What we don't have, though, is that human dimension, right? That we don't have a really defined organizational culture right now because we don't have in-person communication. Um, we don't have in-person collaboration. We don't have a lot of um, nonverbal communication. And so that's where we really need to think hard because we are in the people business. We're in the business of changing lives directly. Right, our job is to secure funding and resources and knowledge that then gets poured directly into youth and young adults, getting their first job, growing in leadership and personal development, being introduced to the outdoors. And to some extent, I think our culture needs to reflect that. And and when it comes to fulfillment, productivity, work satisfaction, investment in mission, um, what is lost when you have four really effective silos right and no tunnels connecting those silos in person so that's a that's a question we're going to really grapple with Stu, uh, because i think what's emerging for us is that in a coldly objective analysis we don't need brick and mortar we don't we don't need conference room space we don't need um the infrastructure i'm sitting in as we talk right now but that's not the whole story. Um, mm-hmm. It's not the whole story of what work means. It's not the whole story of what supporting each other means. Um, there's an equity, diversity, and inclusion element to this. Um, where at this moment, our staff have all the resources that they need, and they came to us with those resources. That may not always be the case. And I think we need to put some thought into um, looking down the road and understanding that this this family model of CYCA. Um, may not always be here. And we don't want a barrier to introducing new family members to CYCA be, hey, you have this fully functioning, um, fully functional homework environment. 
that right. an expectation of coming to CYCA is that you are fully wired, you have totally reliable internet, you have multiple monitors um, that, you know, and, or, or at least that you have a space where we supply these things for you. Exactly. So I'm also really mindful that there's going to be a legacy to the decision that we make. Um, and the fact that, that our staff right now ha um, has a particular agency to do these things doesn't mean it's always the case. And what that, you know, I want to be mindful of what that means for, you know, the, the future iterations of, of our organizational chart. Yeah, it's an interesting dilemma, I think, because, um, you know, you guys are, and certainly there's, there are veterans that, that are part of your programs as well. So slightly older, older people. Um, but, you know, you're primarily youth focused. And I just, I mean, I know that, you know, I considered myself to be a pretty decent worker throughout my my career. But if you had thrust me into a completely remote situation when I was 22 or or 18 or whatever age, you know, yeah. I probably would not have thrived there. You know, there there's a lot of that hands-on and, and yeah. to figuring out how to how to transition um, you know that material and that knowledge and and yeah. and that hands-on stuff that's kind of part of how we all tend to learn um, is uh, I, I see that as a, as a big challenge. Unfortunately, we do have, you know, a lot of these things that you've mentioned Slack and, and zoom and all the other tools that are at our disposal for that. But, but, you know, at the end of the day, there's, it's hard to replace that, that, you know, mentor hands-on, yes. let me grab this thing from you here and just show you how to do this kind of thing. And, uh, yeah, yeah, I think you make a huge, really, really huge point. Well, and and for cores, that's irreplaceable. I mean, what what um, here at CYCA, you know, we're 100% administrative, right? All the duties I've outlined um, is in support of that. Uh, when it comes to the cores, you know, they have a totally different answer to this. I mean, that they that work, you can't build a trail virtually, and it's not uh, sustainable to teach someone how to build a trail virtually. Um, we did our very best this year in, uh, in terms of front-loading people, and we learned a lot of technology, Google Classroom and you name it, um, because we had members self-quarantine before they came to service, gen generally speaking. Right. Um, and so brick and mortar there will last forever. And in right. fact, one of the main deliveries of cores is that interpersonal interaction. It always has been, predates the internet, uh, and cores predate the internet, but it's never more important now, right? Where in, in non-COVID-19 times, right? right we, the proliferation of technology and, and the siloing of your experience as a human, um, the, you know, the, 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 the digital town halls of Twitter and Facebook and all of that, which have their place, um, we, were, we really saw ourselves as a... Um, a, a, a contrast to that, where it was come work intensely and intimately uh, with nine of your peers and make lifelong friends, right. have a full season of really wonderful personal interaction where your communication skills grow, your empathy skills grow, your leadership skills grow. Um, the, the proliferation of technology and the... Um, the 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 span of COVID nineteen uh, will have no effect on that. Uh, right. That that mission will outpace anything that comes down the road. Cores will always be about um, setting your headphones down, setting your phone down, and actually being present um, in the moment, being present for a day and a present for a week and present for a month, and and depending, you know, being present with people for up to a year is going to be a, a, a part of our impact on youth and young adults uh, that will always be there. Yeah. I'm wondering, you know, as, as I try and brainstorm some solutions for you guys or, or, or things that, that you could put in place, it, it, it almost feels like there's a technology play here only in the, in the management of those in-person connections. And perhaps the thing that, that would be most valuable for, for you guys to be seeking to develop as you're particularly in the, in the space of, of helping cores manage is, is that 
you know, that, that contact tracking piece. Um, or, you know, my, my guess is that that technology is available for purchase too, or, or lease or, you know, however you want to look at that, but certainly, um, it facilitating and enabling a one place solution to that contact tracking could be, you know, that, that gold nugget that, that, that you guys could create or facilitate for the, the eight cores here in the state, um, you know, where, where they're tracking pod, uh, activity and, and really, you know, having a good understanding of where everyone has been so that they can keep those pods in intact. And, yeah. um, yeah. Yeah. And, and actually tangential, uh, but, but related to that, Stu was a couple of our cores, um, were awarded contracts by AmeriCorps to do public facing contact tracing. So we just dipped our toe in that water a little bit this year. Um, the federal government identified AmeriCorps as um, very, uh, uh, very smartly. The federal government identified AmeriCorps as a potential um, avenue to have AmeriCorps members do this really critical mission of reaching out to COVID patients and 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 doing contact tracing and so um, oh, wow. so as part of their their program they were they were helping facilitate that yeah they brought along um, they, so they they onboarded americorps members whose job it was to do contact tracing for the federal government um, wow. as as part of national service um, okay. so they worked here in colorado to to try and save lives uh, by reaching out and and doing this contact tracing service and so um, it was, you know, it was a pilot program. Only, I think a couple of our cores out of the eight, uh, got involved in that. But I think Stu, you're, you're hitting on something relevant, which is we, um, you know, we started to get an orientation to that world and we learned an awful lot. Um, as you'd imagine, we learned an awful lot about, about contact tracing, um, about youth and young adult behavior, uh -huh. um, you know, and because, Again, only a couple of our programs are 24-7. So right. the non-24-7 programs, you have our participants yeah, going, going home, home at night and, yep, um, and yep. then having weekends to themselves. And so um, there was a lot there about um, about developing an investment in those young people in, in the program, in self-quarantine, in making good decisions. But on the functional side, uh, you are correct. I mean, there is value in um, tracking crews tracking where people have been and, and really trying to learn from data. Right. Well, it's interesting because that kind of brings up the, in our careers site that, that we helped you guys with and, and a component of that, that I don't think most people really had consider a whole lot is that you can have a national nat natural resource career and not be out in the bush. You know, it's, it's like there's data science and there's, there's, all of this really interesting stuff happening uh, in parallel with with the guys who are guys and gals who are out fighting fires and building trails and 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 doing you know invasive species mitigation and all of the other things that you can historically think of when you think of of, of a youth corps and a and, and that type of of yeah. service or, or career that you know that that don't don't require that outdoor stuff and so there are plenty of opportunities there for people um who you know who want to make a difference to 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 nature and to our natural you know our environment and natural resources who you know don't have to set foot out, out in that stuff right absolutely i mean the the phrase that that we use um is you don't have to work in the outdoors to work for the outdoors. Yeah. And it's a hundred percent right. I mean, one of the, one of the things that nrcareers.org is aimed at is illuminating all of these really critical, fulfilling, irreplaceable jobs that are in the pipeline to conserving natural resources. Mm -hmm. um, in reality, when you pull the lens up, um, the, the ground-based work, um, is what's most easily recognizable, mm -hmm. but is just one small cog in a really fascinating wheel where um, people who have skills in external communication can be public information officers on a fire. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the natural resource world really does have a need for people who know finance well, 
who want to become grant managers, um, you have the ability to carve out a natural resource career while putting your fingerprints on millions of dollars that are doing amazing things in the conservation sector, but still able to live downtown and have sort of the best of both worlds where, you know, if, if, if the urban life and, and all of the, the culture that comes with that appeals to you, um, but you also have a passion for natural resources and that's part of, of, of your life as well, there are a number of marriages to be had. Um, and so, yeah, our goal is to try and illuminate those um, so, so that we erode the misperceptions of, of what these entry points are. Right. Have you guys done, I, I know that that was the, the part of the goal of that, of that project was, was to tee up the, the hub for that, that information dist- distribution. Has that seen as many problems or, or the same problems or, you know, how are you getting that message out to, to people? I know it originally the idea was to, to hook people in early. So, um, you know, really start to have these conversations in, in, you know, even grade school, perhaps in terms of, of these are careers that you, you can have. And, you know, so you're a gamer and, you know, there are, there are careers where you don't have to, you don't have to go waddle around in the mud to, to, to be part of this great program. How's that, how is that working to get that message out? Yeah, absolutely. You're, you're hitting on probably the most crucial part to building the next generation of natural resource professionals that reflects the face of America. And that is getting, getting people aware, getting young people aware at a young age. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it is a multifaceted effort, right? It's, it's a scaffolded effort. So it's about, um, you know, we're working through partner organizations like boys and girls clubs, um, uh, school districts, you name it, uh, to try and just start some really positive, understandable messages about what the outdoors is, how do we protect it, and why is it important? And as we move through the continuum into the high school age, um, that's where we begin to introduce career awareness. And we begin to, to sort of light that spark of optimism and that spark of knowledge because it, you, you can reach people in college for sure. That mm-hmm. is, and post-college, but there need the, the ingredients in their life need to be right by that point. Meaning um, for a lot of jobs, particularly in the government sector, you need to have had the right type of degree. Right. Um, and um, the, the, if you're not strategically positioned, um, it can be easy to miss the number of entry-level opportunities that are out there. If, if you haven't learned or no one's told you where to look yet mm-hmm. and you've charted a certain pathway through school, um, you know, there are some hard realities that hit 25-year-olds um, that have the spark go off and decide, oh, like I actually really loved my time in Conservation Corps um, I, and I loved getting my wildland fire certification. I want to be a wildland firefighter. Right. That is possible, but to have a career in wildland firefighting, to do more, to graduate from the seasonal component now requires some opportunities that you have to reverse engineer, right? Yep. Some, some certificates that you need college credits to get, et cetera. Yep. So that's why it's important to get, to get the light bulb to go off and that awareness to grow in high school where they can be, where, where, those students can be strategic about what their next step is. And you're right. reaching them before important decision points. Right. Um, and so that's where the majority of our focus is right now, Stu. So um, in, in the Careers and Natural Resources Initiative, uh, our effort to make everything we've talked about happen, um, we, are, we, have, we have raised resources and we are spending quite a bit of our capacity on the high school aged audience. Um, and we're working with youth advisory committees um, to learn uh, exactly how do we reach high school students and what's the messaging that's going to get through to them. And so uh, that's what's occupying a lot of my time. Right. So are you, are, are you, you know, obviously you're, you're going to be leveraging the same kind of technology that we're leveraging here today because yep. um, you're probably not going into classrooms at this point. 
what have you know have you guys developed a, a plan for that or you do is it just trying to get out in front yeah so we raised all the money and resources we had pre-covid okay so all, all of so you're you're exactly right we've got um we have some fantastic supporters behind us that have lent lent money which quite candidly is really important and and really critical to um, helping pay for our time and and our and and what we're working on, um, but it was all designed pre-COVID. So in an ideal world, this you know we were supposed to be starting to support pilot programs in the field and evaluate what does work. Um, and instead, we're like the whole world. We're rapidly trying to reverse engineer. Like, okay, so how do we do this? Right. Um, that's where the youth advisory councils that we're convening are really important. Um, we're having to do those virtually to your point, you know, as right. these were in-person meetings, now they're not, but we are going to learn from high school students directly. How did your online education go? Um, what got through to you? What didn't work? What was the most painful part? Um, <laughs> and what was the most enjoyable part? Right. So, uh, Stu, a lot of what we're we're working on right now is sort of ground truthing from young people themselves. Um, what was effective for you? Uh-huh. What got you excited? What educational strategies worked the best? Right. Um, and trying to to then you know walk what we hope is that short bridge to what we're doing. So we hope that the high school junior says. Man, this was the best parts of my virtual learning. This software is what worked really well. Um, this lesson plan design—I mean, they, they're gonna—they're probably gonna be less formal than that. Sure. But we want to—you know—we basically want to mine them for—you know—what what were the teachers that really inspired you, and how did they do that? And we think we're gonna be able to cobble together a portfolio of um, okay, these are the strategies. This is the packaging. Um, these are the design elements, and and curricula and kind of overlay that on what would have been more traditional yeah. uh, service delivery. Well, so one thing and that, that I think would be a, an interesting thing to explore is how, again, it comes back to that scalability piece. And so instead of doing, you know, certainly each of these is a one-to-many type of opportunity where, you know, you have a a wildland firefighter go into a to a high school and talk to 30 kids at once and everybody you know is excited and and goes away happy now with technology you do have the opportunity to to create kind of a webinar s- scenario around this where you have molten, you know you're recording each of these things you're you're packaging those and you can then distribute those to all the high schools in, in, in the state and, and reach, you know, thousands of, of kids. Um, and so from a scalability standpoint, there, there's a, a potential real boon in that, you know, we are forced into this kind of remote situation, but in that remote situation, you know, I'm, I'm always on the lookout for how, how can I take this thing that I did once and, and facilitate a wider audience to that thing. And yeah. so, uh, you know, I, I would encourage you guys to be on the lookout for, for those opportunities. Um, there's also a, a, a kind of choose your own adventure component to that where building up a library of this stuff where you have, you know, a wildland firefighter and you have a, you know, a, a tech geek and you have all of these, you know, you can take an interview, each of these components of this bigger, this bigger cog, you know, machine that you were talking about earlier and and someone can self-select and say well i'm you know yeah i'm kind of interested in in how technology works here but i'm also kind of interested in this other thing and then you know they could then take that and and really run as as part of putting together their own curricula in 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 a way and really looking at what are the action items after after each of these pieces so you know if this is the path you want to go on here's Here's the seven-step protocol and the, you know, the certificate that you need to get at the end of that, um, where you can really help guide people through that in a in a fairly systematic uh, fashion. I think. Yeah, and that's that dovetails dovetails exactly with what we're hearing from young people. I mean, the the 
the youth advisory councils and our conversations with young people in Colorado, uh, the theme that has really stood out is we want access to the natural resource professionals who have these jobs, and we want unfiltered, truthful, realistic visions of what they entail. Um, so that's been really interesting to hear. And so things that we're working on, um, you know, that that are, are just starting to take shape for us in our strategies is how do we replicate um, ask me anything sessions like Reddit runs, um, right. where we uh, facilitate um, uh, ideally probably a live chat, but if, if not sort of a curated, managed um, pre, you know, um, you know, um, um, uh, pre-submitted, but, 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 but true to form unvarnished questions from, from, from students to a natural resource professional. Um, another, uh, uh, tool that we've heard that high school students are really interested in is a high school student, uh, produced and filmed video series where it's basically a day in a life of a natural resource professional. Uh, but again, gives, gives a, a, a a brutally truthful view of like that. This is what this job entails. Um, these are the challenges. This is the day-to-day life. These are the outcomes. So um, I think thematically what you're touching on, Stu, um, is really what we're hearing is basically yeah. oh, um, e- even pre-COVID, it was how can we use technology to gain direct access to um to, 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 to knowledge uh, about this. Yeah. And I think that the, you know, the AMA would work great and that's evergreen as well. It becomes content. Right. So exactly you know, even right. though it's a one-time kind of thing, you, you know, you now answered 30 very specific questions. And I think if you, you know, if you can, can coach people up on being vulnerable and being honest and open and, and saying, yeah, you know, 40% of what I do kind of sucks. But the other 60% is so awesome that, you know, the paperwork that I have to do after the fact, you know, yeah, that that's not my favorite part of the job. It is part of the job, but you know, it facilitates or it enables me to do this other 60% that I just, that I just adore. And uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. We spot on. I mean, we, what we hear from young people is they want access to this knowledge and what we, where we think the real advantage for us on top of that is, is, is we have the ability now to, to uh, potentially create an entire catalog because those things do live on. So uh, that is the future of, of this effort. It is the near future of our efforts in engaging high school students. Um, We are closing in on some action items um, that we hope to announce soon um, that involves some projects on what might this technology be, um, how might we go about making some of these um, uh, uh, some of these data points available? You know, ask me anything. Chats and video series and and all that. Um, we're not far off from from actually beginning to start to take some first steps on those. Well, that's really cool to hear. I'm yeah. I'm excited for you guys. I think that's great. Well, that was a fun uh, hour. I that one flew by. It was really cool to talk with you. I really, I don't know how much gold I added to our conversation or what your takeaways might be, um, but it was it was really fun and informative. And I think that you you touched on a lot of things that that a lot of people in the nonprofit world are are struggling with and and challenged with. And um, and I like to end these with a with an action item. Um, you know, I I'm a big fan of of uh, talking but having something to give people to, to try out or to do at the end of this would, would be fantastic. And if you had a takeaway for, for our audience, it could be anything. What, you know, what's that action item? What would you like people to do in the next couple of weeks? From what I've seen firsthand, um, and I think what, what we see happening around the state is I don't think there's ever a more important time to educate yourself on being a good land steward when you're out on public land. We, are seeing people take advantage of the magic of the outdoors and the, and the mental wellness that comes with being in the outdoors. And that's fantastic. It is great to see the next generation of Colorado 
uh, appreciate and understand in a in a unique way in our nation's history what the outdoors can do, but that comes with it a responsibility. And so I think the action item is to educate yourself on leave no trace principles, uh, educate yourself on uh, keepitcolorado.com um, and learn about what are the easy steps to take to be a good responsible steward of the land because it's not much. Um, it is really about just going, being prepared with a trash bag. Um, it is ensuring that um, you recognize when there's a social trail as opposed to the durable trail um, or understanding that, um, you know, it is really harmful to hop off the trail to go up to that overlook um, because that social trail now results in a lot of destruction. And so um, that's my main action item is, is as we see our state parks and our national forests and our national parks see enormous visitation, we're really happy you're out there recreating. We just ask uh, to please take some, some really basic fundamental knowledge in your backpack with you um, so that everything remains sustainable because the resources aren't there as much um, as other years to keep them in pristine condition. Well, I, I love that. And um, I will add uh, a link to Leave No Trace. Is it a credo? I'm not sure exactly what they call that, but the, their, their rules of the trail, I'm going to add that to the show notes. And I really, really do appreciate all the time you took today to, to chat with me about CYCA and, and in our careers. And um, we'll, we'll add those to the show notes as well. And, and Scott, it was super, super fun talking with you. And thanks so much for, for joining me on the show today. Oh, thanks so much for what you do, Stu. Appreciate it. We'll, we'll see you in the outdoors. All right, man. I'll talk to you later. Sounds good. All right. There you have it. Another episode of Relish to This, the nonprofit marketing podcast. If you want to continue the conversation and see how we can unearth some gold for your organization, head over to relishstudio.com slash podcast to sign up to be a guest on the show. That's it for this week. Thanks for listening. We'll be back soon with another episode of Relish This.